Welcome to Guns and God, the podcast that brings faith and politics into conversation with particular interest in extremism and violence. My name is Helen Painter. I'm director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College. And my co-host today is... Matthew Feldman, uh, director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, speaking in a private capacity and delighted to be here with Mr. Lusk. Yes, we're delighted to today to have uh, Mr. Paul Lusk with us. Um, Paul studied politics at Oxford um, some years ago now, um, and since then he's worked in uh, areas as diverse as development, education, journalism, and for organisations as diverse as the United Nations, the Sudan government, and Liverpool City Council. More recently, Paul um, is a member of the Anabaptist Network, which we might hear a little bit more about in due course and the author of a recent book published in 2017 through Ecclesia called The Jesus Candidate. Um, Paul's interested in the relationship between church and state, and today I'm hoping that we're going to have a really interesting conversation about civil religion. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us, and we're really delighted to have you with us. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm going to ask a scene-setting question, if you don't mind, to catch our our listeners up a little bit. Um, You... You are what many might regard as as an oddity, being a Christian who argues that Christians shouldn't have a protected space in the public square. Now, I think some of our listeners might think that was a turkey voting for Christmas. How would you respond to that? Well, um, it's certainly true that a lot of people would regard me as an oddity. Um, but, um, <laughs> I, I don't think that... The, that position you described, which I, I certainly endorse, I don't think that's an unusual one within Christian circles. I would take it back at least to Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, mm. who was um, both a, a an important political theorist. Actually, recently, Theresa Bejan of Oxford University said he was more important than than Hobbes or Locke. Um, uh, he, he was roughly a contemporary with Hobbes and, and 50 years or so ahead of Locke, um, really operating in the 1630s and 1640s. And he experienced and understood the danger of Christians claiming control of the state or privilege within the state. Um, and the persecution of Christians that that led to. And if you think about it, it, there's a perfectly simple reason for that. If you have a political system which gives privilege to Christians, then it ha- that system has to define what a Christian is. And if you then have Christians who don't accept that definition, and in William's time we'd be talking about Baptists, and Quakers, as well as as, as non-believers of various kind. Um, if the state says, oh, here's Christianity, you conform to it or else, um, then the people who will be persecuted are Christians, among others. And of course, by the early 17th century, um, Christianity was, I was going to say, sick to the back teeth of persecution, mm-hmm. but it certainly had huge experience of it. And William saw that what what you needed is what um, what he called mere civility. You need a system which is, if you like, in modern terms, a level playing field, um, equality before the law. Um, so that 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 was um, taken on board by the Anabaptists and became, I 
argue in the book, the basis for liberalism. Now, I think the difference now, which is really important, is that we are no longer a nominally Christian society. We have reached a point where in the United Kingdom, um, about 50% of people say they have no religion. Um, about 40% thereabouts say they are Christians. Possibly a quarter of those are active believers. Um, but the key thing is that, if, you know, in my younger years, um, uh, it was taken that we were a Christian country. Now, actually, a lot of people, uh, particularly in the evangelical world, would have debated about whether you could have such a thing as a Christian country. But um, the point now is that uh, and the um, really extraordinary thousand year change is that Christianity is now even nominally um, a minority position. And that's a new set of challenges. And, and maybe that's a situation where a lot of people want to kind of run for the safe space and say, oh, yeah, yeah, but let's let's really pretend we're a Christian nation for whatever purposes. But I, I wouldn't say that my position as such is that odd. Um, no, perhaps, <laughs> and and I, I, my tongue was firmly in my cheek when I said it, of course, because as a Baptist minister, I wholly subscribe yeah. to the same theology as you and in this matter. Indeed, if if the centre, if if the, um, it seems to me that if Christians are pursuing political power, um, then what what they're doing is they are. Um, well, first of all, I think they're putting their confidence in something other than God. They're putting their confidence in political processes mm. rather than God, it seems to me. But but more than that, they're essentially saying might makes right, aren't they? And then when might doesn't look like what they want it to look like, then then they're not going to like it. <laughs> so in other words, when when you have a Christian majority in a country and those Christians say, we, we should form the government, we should, we should um, influence the government, then what they're saying is because of our majority, because mm. of our, we, we need a privileged space. But when they are no longer in a majority, as, as, as you were saying, then, then actually things, th they're not going to like that when another, perhaps another faith is in the majority or, or a secularism is. Or indeed confession, perhaps. I mean, that feels like it's um, one of the underpinnings of what Paul is saying. And I can't help but think that when Roger Williams was founding Rhode Island, the wars of religion, as they're called, were, were really at their apogee in Europe. And mm. those were indeed, as I understand, you know, tore through what's now Germany. I think about one in three Germans were killed in that um, war of religion. And of course, those were that was Catholic Protestant, really, and, uh, and different types of Protestant, of course. Yes, yes. Um, I think the, to go back to what you were saying, Helen, there is, I think if you have a society which is majority Christian or where most of the population kind of see themselves as Christian, the point is not so much that you have Christians claiming control as such, but that, um, the majority population will kind of subscribe to the idea that what we say as Christians uh, has a kind of practical legitimacy and applicability to um, public life and to policy making. Um, and that's really the challenge um, is, is how we um, how we claim our space as Christians 
um, without assuming that what we say necessarily goes. Hmm. And on that matter then, how do you see, because many Christians um, who disagree with this stance would say that a secular state will promote secularism. Yes. Whereas I think you would argue something different from that. Well, that may be the case, um, but um, I mean, the, the, the logic of that argument actually accepts the premise of what, what we may call the religious right. It assumes that the state must subscribe to a religious position. Um, the basic problem, as I see it, with the religious right is that it, it, it says that the state um, has has been established by God in order to enforce law and law all law has a religious basis and therefore whatever the state does must reflect a religious position and therefore if there are diverse religious positions at work then the inevitable result is that one will oppress the other because one will necessarily claim control of that space um, now there are actually, I think, within secularism, there are two traditions. Uh, one is the, the tradition of Holyoke and kind of a, a lot of the 19th century secularism, which, which says secularism actually necessarily must drive, quote, religion, unquote, out of the public square because it's inherently irrational. It has no place um, in the public square. Um, uh, so that, if you like, is kind of specifically anti-religious secularism. Uh, but there's another trend, trend within secularism which, which, which says that the public space should be one in which all views are equally welcome. Um, and so the objection to um, religion um, is, is it, its claim for privilege. So I think we endorse the second version of secularism. I, I would say that I'm a Christian secularist. Um, but you do find both views at work, even within, you know, the National Secular Society in the UK, you actually find both positions at work and debated. So you'll find uh, some people active in that, that sphere will say we should be seeking Christian voices you know, as long as they accept our premises and others would say not. And Paul, I mean, from, from reading your work, which I know we'll, we'll turn to shortly, one of the things I found fascinating is even secularism doesn't mean completely without elements of faith or belief uh, as opposed mm. to reason. But perhaps before we get on to the different forms of, of perhaps civil religion or implicit religion, I believe that you've called it, let me take you both back to one question that, that I think Paul said twice that, for example, Britain isn't even a nominally Christian country. And I, I think, Helen, you agreed with that. Let me just try on an argument that uh, I believe comes by David Bentley Hart's atheist delusions, which is if you don't have an even nominally Christian uh, country or founded on in this case, in this particular you know, uh, case that was a Christian majority country for, for many millennia or centuries, um, that the calculus of, let's say, utilitarianism or scientism looks very, very different indeed. The point that I think David Bentley Hart was making is that, um, that societies that, that were at one time Christian, but have jettisoned that for a full kind of embrace of every aspect of secularism, 
perhaps don't know what they're trading off in terms of, let us say, I think the examples of David Bentley Hart are, you know, caring for the aged, rejecting things like eugenics. Um, again, could, could one say that, uh, you know, therefore maybe we don't have, uh, as, as uh, Paul has very clearly laid out, more in Britain than a 10 or 15% uh, church-going population, but that to remove even nominal Christian belief from a society would be something that looks different from the society in which we live? Well, um, I think to say we're post-Christian doesn't mean we're ex-Christian. We're, post, we're post-Christian that um, although Christian belief is now um, confined to a fairly small minority, certainly our culture, our values, our systems, the sort of things you mention, these are very, very much part of a Christian heritage and a Christian sensibility which is inherited. And I I think it is futile to seek to kind of row back to a kind of remnant Christendom and say, well, well, let's kind of um, go along with the pretense that we're we're all Christians at some level. Um, uh, but I think we do need to really remind people about the Christian heritage and about the danger of a kind of a, an unthinking secularism which doesn't acknowledge um, the importance of the Christian presence and voice. And I think the Christian voice in the public square is very important as part of that mix. And Helen, you're, you're nodding, so perhaps I'm hair-splitting a little bit over, over what we mean by nominally, but you would agree that there are certain, let's call them Christian cultural elements, um, even perhaps moral elements that may be operative in Britain, but that that is different than, let us say, for example, policymakers saying, I'm drawing on the Bible and passing this legislation, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah, quite so. Um, I, I, I agree with Paul that a huge amount of of what we call um, what we call Britishness, perhaps even, or, or what we call the things that we assume um, as as good um, in our society, have have come from um, the influence of mm. of the Christian Church um, in in centuries past. Um, of course, that's not to say that other faiths haven't haven't contributed, and and people of no faith haven't contributed to to forming that. But I do think we need to acknowledge the the role of the church in in that history and in, in which we still are deeply steeped um but it's a question now of um what what privilege the church should claim um so i, I would i don't want and I, I i know that paul's not saying this either but i don't want to say that christians shouldn't be active in politics or christians shouldn't be speaking in the public square um but that we shouldn't um arrogate to ourself a, a privilege there. We should expect our arguments to, to stand or fall on their merits um, and, uh, and, to, and to be prepared to work, of course, with, with those of, of other faiths and none um, for, the, for the common good. And can I, because we're not um, in this podcast really shying too much away from controversial subjects, but really, I think, tackling them head on, can I give an example of what I think I'm, I, you know, again, I want to understand from two theologians' point of view if I'm if I'm on the wrong track here. But let us take um, then leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron, and there was the issue of, I believe, supporting same-sex marriage. Now, my understanding is that he had 
as a liberal Democrat, voted to uh, uh, endorse same-sex marriage, but that his personal view as a Christian um, was more complex and perhaps less, um, uh, he didn't endorse it in the same way, I think is probably what I'm trying to get at. Um, is that the kind of thing that you're getting at where, um, in a sense, he's he's making policy as, a, as, as clearly as a secular person who's trying to I think it would be fair to say, you know, um, push the bounds of freedom further and further back. But it sat, I, again, I think I'm just remembering this sort of um, furore around the fact that he was clearly very uncomfortable in, um, in offering his personal views, in this case of, of gay marriage, as I recall. Well, um, Tim, Tim Farron's, uh, he's an evangelical. Um, uh, um, he um, very much took the view that um, gay people were entitled to the same rights um, equally as, as anybody else in society. Um, uh, he became leader of the Liberal Democrats at an interesting moment and in, in a, I think a difficult position because um, he, he's on the left of the Liberal Democrat party um, he had not taken part in the coalition, so he'd not been one of Cameron and Clegg's ministers. Um, all the senior Liberal Democrats had lost their seats in 2015, which was unexpected. Clegg, who'd been Deputy Prime Minister, did much worse than he expected. And um, Farron, Tim Farron had actually voted against his own party on some issues, I think including student fees on housing benefit issues. Um, he was not liked by his fellow Liberal Democrats. Um, uh, and um, there had been issues around uh, a colleague of his, David Laws, who was quite a right-wing um, uh, minister who was gay and had concealed um, a property deal uh, which he should have declared, and that was to hide the fact that it was with his gay partner. All this is on the public record. Um, he, he, people started going for him to, people wanted to know, is it a sin to be gay? That's what he was asked. He had That's news right. reporters chasing him. It was really nothing to do right. with same-sex marriage. It was really, you know, broader than that. Is it, a, is it a sin to be gay? Now, to a Christian, that's a, a non-Christian asks you, is it a sin to do something? This doesn't make a lot of sense because to a Christian, the basis of sin is, uh, is that I put my own judgment before that of God. <laughs> you know? So to, to be asked in a, in a public square, um, uh, you know, is it a sin to be this, that and the other? It doesn't make a great deal of sense. And then Tim got himself into an awful mess, I think, first of all, saying no and then coming back and saying yes. And um, uh, I really felt for him. I think he was very unprepared for the question. And, you know, clearly you're in politics, your political opponents and they go for whatever they can. Um, and it struck me at the time that had he been a Catholic, he'd have had he'd have had a you know, advice. <laughs> the church would have given him somebody to prepare him for these things. Um, I think, you know, in the evangelical world, you know, we're pretty individualistic, and I, I don't think he had the best advice. Um, 
and Vince Cable, um, who um, one of the, perhaps the most senior of the ex-ministers who'd lost his seat, apart from Clegg himself, Vince Cable on a news program said, well, the problem for Tim and a lot of other people, including Catholics, is that they really think this, that and the other, um, but they don't have a majority. Um, uh, you know, the majority opinion is against them. Therefore, they have to adapt to what people people say, people, the majority think. I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but I could look up the exact quote. So basically what Cable was saying is Tim is not a liberal in the way that he says he's a liberal. He's, he was saying, oh, he doesn't really mean it. Mm. Um, and I mean, to me, it was clear as a student of politics that basically they were screwing Farron over. Farron did the job that they needed doing, which was to save enough of the Lib Dems to survive until the big boys, Cable, and sorry if that sounds a bit sexist, but the big, the big guns, um, including Cable, got, got back into Parliament. Um, so I, I think Farron got hung out to dry. He could have been better prepared. Um, but, but, you know, essentially, for a politician to be asked is something a sin is a violation of religious liberty. What is a sin is, is, a, is properly a matter within the church. What is pr properly to be permitted under the law is a matter for the whole community. Um, and actually, there's a really great book on this, Liberals, Liberalism's Religion by Celine Laborde, which is about these boundaries. And um, I would really commend that book. But I, th I think this is ex exactly the sort of thinking that needs to take place within the Christian world to be kind of be prepared for these sort of questions. In your um, in the article you sent, um, which that's that's um, is that public domain? Because if it is, I'll put a link to it on on the website. I think it's I think it's coming out in a couple of weeks. Oh, fantastic! Yes, um, and, um, and a baptism today. Yes, which is I really enjoyed, and and you look at a number of um, case studies from the Bible to ask the question uh, really around the leg legitimacy of state. Yes. Um, in in response to um, some kind of conversations that that had been going on, I think um, around around possible the possibility that that the Apostle Paul was promoting um, anarchism, um, and so you you give a number of case studies which I I really enjoyed reading, but there was one that really caught my attention, which is the, the little known parable of the trees from Judges. Mm. Um, now I'm, I'm I'm very keen on Judges. Um, it used to be my least favourite book of the Bible, and, and now it's one of my favourites because it's such an extraordinary um, exploration, actually, I think, of, of what happens when there is a, a power vacuum um, and, uh, and, and no godly leader to, in a place or no good leader. Um, it, the, the Old Testament would describe it in, in terms of no godly leader, but, uh, you know, I think we, we could say it's an exploration of what happens when there's no good leader. Anyway, back to this parable in Judges. Um, and you make, well, well I, would you like to... Um, tell our listeners what the parable is and what conclusions you draw from it because I think it's very striking um okay well the, the context is that um God gave permission for the people of Israel God's people to have a king um and I interpret that as meaning they could have a state um and a, a state defined in in the way that uh, you know standard sociology Max Weber um an institution with a monopoly of the use of force across territory. Um, and 
So the first person actually to be offered the chance to be king was Gideon. This isn't usually known, actually, <laughs> if you talk, talk to most kind of um, student, everyday students of the Bible, they'd probably say Saul. This isn't well known, but, but they came to Gideon and said, rule over us and your sons and grandsons uh, rule over us. Um, so, you know, just allowing for the gender bias there, which is you know, culturally a <laughs> context, um, they, were, they were inviting him to set up a royal house you know, to become the monarch. And he said, no, I won't rule over you. God will rule over you. Um, so what then happened is that they, they set up a, a, a worship point in his hometown. Um, and it, the, the text says um, that all of Israel played the harlot there. In other words, it was idolatry that went on. Um, and I think it's fairly clear to see Gideon actually was acting as king, but claiming to kind of channel the voice of God which actually is quite a well-known, if you study political anthropology, it happens, it happens a great deal. Um, so when Gideon dies, there are 70 princes and um, no one knows who's going to be king. So one of them, Abimelech, who is um, an illegitimate daughter of Gideon, goes to his family and says, um, make me king. Um, much better that one person should be king rather than all this 70. And um, if it's going to be one person, might as well be us lot in our, our tribe. So his, his uncles all take money from the temple and um, hire people to round up all the other brothers and half-brothers and kill them. Um, yeah, it's a grim story, um, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it, is, it is just politics. It is raw <laughs> politics um so and one one survives and this is jotham and he tells a, a a fable um and it's not well known this but it's there in the book of judges and two centuries ago it, it was it was quite quite well known as a political fable uh and so jotham tells his fable about how the trees decided to appoint one of their number to be the ruler so they ask um, the, the vine and they ask the fig tree and, and, you know, they ask the productive trees come and rule over us. And they all say, no, no, we're too busy giving our fruit. We're not going to come and take on this responsibility. So they turn to the thorn, the bramble. And the bramble says, yes, OK, um, I will rule over you, but, but just be careful that you treat me properly or, or you'll all get burnt up. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, in that point, Jotham says, now, if you have in truth, in truth to Gideon made Am Abimelech ruler, well, you know, good luck to you. But if you, if not, be careful because you're all going to get burnt up. Um, and Jotham then disappears to the pages of history, of history and, um, and what happens is that Israel turns into a failed state. And, and that, that's, a, that's another story which we don't need to go into. But what and, Abim and Abimelech dies by having a woman drop a millstone on his head. That, oh, yes. Oh, that's the best bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, sorry. No, I mean, since you've raised that, <laughs> all, 
all Abimelech's brothers, all his clan, set up roadblocks and start, they start banditry across the kingdom. Now, Abimelech desperately tries to sort this out and stop it. Eventually, there's a civil war in which, as you say, he's killed by a woman <laughs> dropping a millstone on his neck. You like that. <laughs> I do quite like that bit, yeah. <laughs> I think he deserved what he had coming to him, really. <laughs> the, the state then collapses. It becomes a failed state. Now, I think the, 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 the point of this uh, story, is it's often, it's often interpreted to mean, well, the thorn is useless, the, 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 you know, and prominent scholars say, well, this is a low view of kingship. Um, now, I think the point of the story is that the, the, um, the thorn is a picture of the state. Um, the thorn is not a useless tree. If you actually travel in, in dry desert lands, um, as, I, as I actually have, you'll see rows of thorn that keep the animals in or, or, or protect the um, farmed areas from, in, from intruders. But, but in dry, hot conditions, the thorn can catch fire. So if you're going to have a thorn bush, you need to keep it watered and trimmed. Um, and it seems to me that, that the, the picture here is, is, is of the state. The state's function properly and legitimately is to have an exercise, to, to be able to have the monopoly of force. The state can project force in order to protect the fruit trees. It doesn't compete with the productive trees. Uh, it protects and it protects the borders from from the outside. Um, but if you're going to have one of these, you need to understand it and look after it and keep it watered. Otherwise, you're all going to get burnt up. And that's what I suggest is the meaning of the, uh, the story. And, and the last person who spotted that, as far as I can tell, is Joseph Addison, the first editor of The Spectator in 1711, oh, who said something nice. fairly, not quite the same, but, but fairly similar, as I, mm. as I quote in the article. Can I maybe take you up on, on one of those elements that I found um, really gripping in your talk? And you'll forgive me if I sort of come a circuitous way um, by putting to you, um, you talk about civil religion in your piece and you draw upon Robert Bella, who really talks about a kind of, um, you can almost say deist view of, of, of sort of religion. Um, and and um, forgive me for um, reading a quote to you that I had in mind, which is uh, Kenneth Burridge's New Heaven, New Earth. And he says, meditating on the infinite may be a religious activity, so may writing a check, eating corpses, copulating, listening to a thumping sermon on hellfire, examining one's conscience, painting a picture, growing a beard, licking leprous sores, tying the body into knots, a dogged faith in human rationality. There is no human activity which cannot assume religious significance. And I couldn't help, but I literally had to go and look it up as I was reading about <laughs> implicit religion and civil religion and what you were saying, because I wonder if it's possible to have a secular state that doesn't draw upon metaphysical notions of the good or use certain tropes that might be part of a religious tradition to that state or to that community? That, that's a, it's a very, very good question. Um, I, I think one of the, I mean, my, my short answer is we don't quite know if that's possible. I would like to think it's possible and it's, it, to my mind, it's worth trying. Um, that we we simply have, um, you know, uh, the 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 job of the the job of the, of government 
um, should be a, a technical job and people should subscribe to the, the legitimacy of the state because they understand what it is. Uh, that's a sort of very simplistic. I suppose there's a level of kind of patriotism and symbolism and anthems and, and so on, which, yes. which is needed for, 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 well, for, I, I mean, we all enjoy that sort of thing and, and, and it, they are symbols of what, what we all subscribe to. And I, I don't neglect the importance of patriotism and there is a, a role. Um, I mean, as a as an as a an evangelical, something that a lot of evangelicals are are aware of is that um, Christianity has a very kind of middle class character. Certainly among among the white community in in the United Kingdom, Work, white working class traditional Christianity has very largely vanished. Um, and a, a lot of that was about, you know, the Welsh chapel or the local Anglican church or whatever, or the Catholic church or these places that, that dealt with the transitions in life, that married you, that buried you, that christened your children, which people like Helen and I think, you know, is awful and we don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> we might have dedications. Indeed. <laughs> um, so... All this symbolism, which kind of rested on the myth that we are, we, we, that everybody in the community is Christian. And, you know, people like, um, you know, the kind of more benign elements of, of the religious right um, do, do regret the passing of that level of civil religion. Um, and, and I think there is a need to kind of recover that if we're going to rebuild the credibility of, of, of Christianity. I'm not sure how to do it. Um, I think many black Christians understand this better than white Christians, perhaps, but um, that certainly is an issue. Um, in terms of civil religion and the kind of stuff that Bella was writing about, seems to me that was superseded by the rise of the religious right in the 70s. Um, yes, and I think that they, they're... they're... I would separate what you're talking about with the religious right is religious politics that is familiar and can be liberal in context and can be theocratic mm. and of course is not just limited to Christianity and a certain type of Christian religion that, for example, says, uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to uh, characterize Bella here, that uh, the Magna Carta in this country or the Constitution in the United States, maybe people wouldn't be comfortable calling them sacred documents, but they are certainly revered, held to a standard much higher than other documents that are written in 1215 and 1776, that they are something, there is something of a cornerstone about them in the way in which present day American mm -hmm. and British respectively understand themselves in the world. And that somehow running a state, bringing people together, it, it, it's, I think Bella is saying, it's, it's actually not possible without something, uh, some element of that. Mm. A national anthem is is probably his you know his basic example of a of a kind of civil I hesitate to call it religion but a civil um, act of faith or of of, of collective um, belief dare I say are we back to the idea of sort of William Kavanagh's idea of how what defines religion really um, and anything that makes an appeal to 
um, undivided loyalty or anything that I'm trying to remember exactly what he says. But but um, I think I think what we could say is that these things like these national anthems and these ancient documents have, as you say, they have a, a, a particular place in the in, in the cultural memory or in the cultural um, appreciation of a people, which which is close to um, how one might define religion for many. Is that is that what you're saying? I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there might be traditional organized religion and that that can, of, of course, in some some cases, um, uh, you know, be the defining stamp or character of a state. And again, theocracies of the past are very familiar things right around the world. And then there's this, what I understand Robert Bell is saying is that there's a sort of social glue that every society needs. And I'm maybe drawing a bit on, on Wittgenstein here and his understanding of ethics, that to some degree, when we say this is a good person, um, our basis for judging that isn't like saying, I'm, I'm using Wittgenstein here, that person's a good tennis player where we know what a bad tennis player looks like and we know what a good tennis player looks like because you can compare them. But that when we get into this is a good person or this is a good society, that those are inherently metaphysical questions that are so freighted with, dare I say, religious type judgment. The society that doesn't rest upon some form of, of civil religion can't function. That's the argument in any case. Hmm. I should also maybe hasten to add that I, I would add a third category of what I would call political religion, which is a totalitarian exclusivist drive um, that we might see in, in fascism and Nazism on one hand, we might see in communism on the other hand. That's a, a pretty well-established literature. And I think that, that a lot of scholars would be comfortable saying that is a totalitarian phenomenon, whereas a civil religion might be a democratic phenomenon. Yeah, I think, um, as I say in the book, um, I, I don't think the common good um, is a Christian idea. Um, Christians understand human beings to be sinful. And we believe that good is found by, by an insubmission to God. Um, and Roger Williams dealt with this issue because he had to deal with the with not quite the same question, um, but he dealt with this question, um, which, which was that uh, the the um, the pure the mainstream Puritans of Massachusetts said um, that a, a civil magistrate must be good, and that means godly. Um, therefore, you cannot have a civil magistrate who does not. Meet, meet the criterion of being a good member of the church. Um, and, and Williams said, William, William's counter to this was, um, well, the, 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 the um, ruler of a state or, or the, the magistrate, which, which just meant politician really, or administrator, um, is like the captain of a ship. A good captain of a ship is somebody who can navigate in and out of harbor um, get the passengers to their destination. He doesn't have to worry about the moral character of the of the passengers. Um, so I, I would, I think where we are is that we need to explore the idea of the good society being the competent society 
um, the, the society that creates safety and the society that makes it possible for people to pursue their own idea of good. People don't become good by conforming to what the state says they should do. I think people become good um, or, or rather enter into God's goodness through the scriptures and worship and study and, and, and application and practical application. Um, I think I think you're talking about something slightly different, which is myth rather than than, than actually common good. But 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 yeah, and I, I actually would suggest that myth is a is another thing. Let me let me forgive me. Try to put it yeah. in a different way because it seems like the shoe is on the other foot. And I'm looking. I think we're exactly 140 years on since Charles Charles Bradlaugh, the MP from Northampton, was elected uh, the first atheist MP and refused to take his oath and was quickly mm -hmm. bucked into prison. And he's saying, fascinatingly, almost the exact same things as I understand, Paul, that you're saying now. And it seems, again, like, um, in a sense, we've done a 180 where it is Christians who are arguing that the common good, um, in a sense, one's faith can be left at the door on behalf of the common good. I assure you, that's exactly not what Christians were saying a mere 140 years ago. In this oh, it's not what most Christians would say now. I mean, you know... <laughs> If you want, if you want Good to show point. me as an oddity, you can quote what I just said. I mean, you know. In, Good point. I, I, I don't. I'm not as. I, I don't speak for for Christians generally. Um, do 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 carry on. Yeah. But, no, it's just. It, I imagine that probably most or many a plurality of MPs today would be M, would be atheists, and it would be the Christians who would take a stand that might say, again, we come back to Tim Farron, um, my religious views aren't going to color my ability to do this job. Whereas, of course, 140 years ago, William Bradlaugh said, my lack of religious views aren't going to color my ability to well, do I, this job. I, I think what, what Tim Farron would say is that my religious views do color my ability to do this job. Be, because I do this job, if I do the job well, it is, it is honoring to God. And I, and I hoped him would say, I think he would say that, that he would pray daily about doing the job. But it's is not his job to go out into Parliament and make people behave as if they are Christians. And that's that's really the problem with with a, a lot of the kind of religious right discourse. You know, you, you will behave the way the Bible says you will behave um, because, because the state is implementing God's law. Um, now, that's not actually the Christian position. Um, Christian position is that you follow God's law out of love for God. Um, not because you're following a set of set of rules enforced by the state. Yes. And, and in fact, what you're describing is much more close to a, a sort of Victorian Christianity that is a civilizing mission that is, um, you know, kind of reflected in the state. And I don't want to characterize it simply as Victorian, because, of course, we have a very powerful religious right in the United States today. Mm. Let's should we turn to that, because I think that I'd like to bring this this conversation kind of bang up to date, although let's not let's not make it. Um, out of date before it's published. We are we're, we're recording at a moment of enormous change in the United States. But if we could talk slightly more generally than the American election, um, then uh, what what are your thoughts about what the religious right in the United? What are both your thoughts actually about what the religious right is trying to do in the United States at the moment? Do you want me to have a go at that, or are you sort oh. of gearing up, Matthew? 
Um, oh, I don't know about that, actually. Probably running and hiding. I'm gonna <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's a kind of operational strategic thing in the religious right. And the, the religious right is, let, let's say for a start, an astonishingly successful political movement. Absolutely. Which goes back to, and, and there's, this is very well documented, and as, a, as an operation, it goes back to Jimmy Carter. Um, and you had a situation where the, the, the evangelical vote, well, the evangelical vote in the States is, is tremendously important. About 25% of Americans describe themselves as evangelicals. And 80% of the white evangelicals voted Trump and almost the same number voted for Bush Jr. Yes. About 76% Bush Jr. Um, now, that vote, that, there are reasons there are so many of them. I mean, number of evan the proportion of the UK population that's evangelical would be about 3%. So it's a very different kind of orders of things. And, you know, the States is an outlier in so many ways. Um, uh, and you can talk about the theology and whether these people, you know, but an awful lot of these people are church going, you know, Bible reading, believing Christians. Um, and so um, that, that, that vote, if you, if you go back a bit, that vote was split. Traditionally, the Northern part of that vote voted Republican um, it's the, that's the party of Lincoln, the party of anti-slavery, and the southern part of that vote, which is very important, that, that vote is predominantly southern, not only, but, you know, biased towards the south, that was traditionally a Democrat vote. And that was um, traditionally the Democrats protected segregation in the south. And that's a really weird thing for people to get their heads around. Um, but but you know there were people who were progressive, left leftish in American terms who were nonetheless segregationist, and and FDR defended segregation. Yes. Truman began to nibble at it a bit. Eisenhower nibbled at it some more, but that 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 vote was Democrat and first showed significant shift to the Republicans with John F. Kennedy, because John F. Kennedy, because you had the civil rights movement in the 50s, and that really began to make life, you know, the Democrats had to face up to this contradiction. They were a progressive party, you know, in American terms, left, um, uh, but they were defending segregation in the South. So it, 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 it shifted, it, it, it voted Republican, from 1960 onwards was, was heading that direction and Carter pulled it back in 76. So the Republican strategists were trying to figure out what to do. And there were particularly a guy called Paul Weyrich um, and you know, a number of others were figuring, how do we pull, how do we deal with Carter? How do we pull that vote back into our column? And they assembled the moral majority. Um, Jerry Falwell, Paul Weyrich, a lot of other people figured this out and they worked on the segregation issue which was an issue around school desegregation private school desegregation there was the women's issue equal rights amendment which carter was supporting there was abortion there's a whole range of things so and and that was a, a 
a brilliantly a brilliant piece of political architecture things like the heritage foundation like focus on the family like masses of other institutions were set up they set out to win not just political battles but cultural and educational battles just to to, to establish a, a an intellectual movement um uh, and they had money behind them because um a lot there was a lot of um of business money um private family business money which which was looking to stop what they saw as the rise of the left i mean this was this was when you know civil rights um Lyndon Johnson, big society. This was all about, this was part of the same movement as Thatcher here. It was rolling back the state and re-establishing um, uh, re-establishing sort of safe space for capitalism. So that, you know, that's the kind of background, but at the backbone of this, and this is, that's all well document, documented, but the backbone of this was an ideology. And this was the ideology of Rushduni and Schaefer. And it was, um, the idea as that the state exists to promote law, um, that the law it promotes must be God's law. If it's not God's law, then it's uh, it, it's satanic. It's the Moloch state, and we must wage cultural war against this phenomenon. And then there was a huge number of stuff of things behind that still going on around guns, around the, the legitimacy of state violence and the legitimacy of anti-state violence once you say the state is satanic then you say well the wrong people have got a monopoly of force we're entitled to use violence to resist the state um, you've got that trend um, so um, and the um, the men women thing you had this huge kind of movement of of um, you know pr protecting men within marriage and what the role of women is and you know this this stuff is still going on um, the subordination of women the role of women in the family and to meet the sexual needs of the man um, and you know, this is really powerful stuff um, so you, you can see how there's an awful lot of of wrapping around that sort of um, you know religious right vote um i've talked about the evangelical vote but it, it's a catholic vote as well uh, working class catholic white catholic vote um i don't think that it will be much affected whatever trump did i mean trump could stand up tomorrow and say oh by the way i've signed a pact with satan and i don't think it would make a huge amount but it might cause a little bit of surprise that one um but they've they've already well discounted every everything that trump could do well, because that's an absolutely, fa I mean, it's a fascinating characterization you've got there. Personally, I would think that for me as an American, when we would document the rise of the religious right, I mean, and you're absolutely right that the civil rights period under Kennedy and, and then under Johnson was, was transformative in, in the so-called Southern strategy. Although I do think that Eisenhower, who, who was president between 53 and 61 and was responsible for desegregating schools, oftentimes is left out of that, who is a Republican. But to me, the point that you make is... Ugly. Can I just say, can I just interrupt you very quickly there? Yes, yeah. The Republicans are the party of Lincoln. The Republicans yes. were the party of anti-slavery. Um, of course. You know, until, until FDR, um, blacks predominantly where they were allowed to vote, which they weren't in the South, of course, but the blacks would have, would have voted Republican. Right. And and I, you're absolutely right to say that, you know, John Kennedy's inauguration, which we, we talked about as Bella's uh, civil religion example, 
was a shift change. But I think that the kernel of what you said there that I found profoundly important, because I do think that the US religious right is the most influential voting block or political block in the United States today. I don't think there's a single more important political block that sticks together and largely has the same views. And what you say about Donald Trump is, is absolutely right because these people um, no longer care about character in the way that they did. And so you'll forgive a, um, something of a personal uh, story, but I grew up very much part and parcel of focus on the family. I remember right. doing daily devotions every day before school for, for literally a decade. I mean, this was uh, absolutely my life through the 1980s. And one of the, uh, I'm a little old now, but one of my sort of formative memories was the Bill Clinton impeachment. And again, parts of my family were very, very plugged in to that evangelical religious right attitude. And uh, I accept that there were a number of different characterizations going on and still are about what happened with Monica Lewinsky and Donald, uh, excuse me, Bill Clinton. But the emphasis again and again, forgive the Freudian slip, the emphasis again and again was that character is determinative. And these same people, you know, less than a, a 25 years on, I'm not sure if any of them believe that anymore or if they ever did in the first place. And that really, I come back to that moment again and again when I meet people like you, Paul, or I hear Donald Trump saying I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any voters. And I think of exactly how far in a generation um, that so-called moral majority has moved. Hmm. I'm not, I mean, it, it, it voted for Ronald Reagan uh, who, who, was okay he wasn't uh, he wasn't a trump but i, don't no, I think, think it elected ronald reagan actually I yeah think, i think really it was the backlash to roe v wade and and the kind of the start of this religious right as a political organization that mm. is you know reagan was the first beneficiary mm. well yeah i mean the, the movement was was put together by by reagan's people it was delivered yeah. to reagan um uh Well, no, I mean, I, I yeah, the, I suppose part of the appeal of Jimmy Carter was 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 character that, that he wasn't um, uh, he wasn't Nixon, um, but you know, part of the pushback against Carter was, was then you know he's not delivering, um, he wasn't seen as very competent anyway, um, but you know he was not seen to be delivering for that evangelical base. Um, the irony is that many of his critics found he was too nice a man. Too nice. Well, I absolutely. I mean, I, th I, th I think this thing about character is a veneer. I don't think it is at all difficult for the this evangelical vote, which, I mean, you know much more intimately than I do. Um, but I don't think it's at all difficult to get your head around an argument that says uh, we need a strong man who will deliver. And, and what Trump will deliver above all is a judiciary um, that, that will then, you know, I mean, the only way you're going to deal with the abortion issue from, a, from that kind of right wing perspective is through the courts. Um, and uh, so they, you know, a big part of the agenda here um, is, um, is delivering these so-called conservative judges. No doubt. Um, whether it'll work, I don't know. But um, no, I don't. I don't think there's a problem at all. You know, as long as Trump is delivering what they want to deliver, we, we, you know, they, they were disappointed with Reagan. They were disappointed with George 
with with Bush Jr. Um, they will they will see Trump as as the guy who is delivering on on that agenda mm. because he's tough. <laughs> Well, I'd love this conversation to go on for a long time, but I'm aware that uh, we're probably starting to um, perhaps tax the stamina of our listeners. <laughs> so uh, I think we're going to need to, to draw it to a conclusion um, in a moment. Um, Matthew, do you have any final um, comments you want to uh, to make or, or ask Paul? Maybe just to timestamp this this discussion, because what Paul mm -hmm. says, I, I think, is absolutely profound and on the money when it comes to you know many of the Trump supporters. Um, just this morning, uh, it was reported that Donald Trump has tested positive for the coronavirus. Many people in his close circle, including Republicans uh, in the Senate, Senate uh, and House, are likely to have tested positive. And it looks like, all things being equal, we may not get a vote on the um, conservative Supreme Court justice that was looking like it was happening. So things are moving massively quickly here. And the backdrop to some of our discussion, I suppose, is a, a great deal of uncertainty about how the religious right is going to react to um, some very uncertain news that is really just hitting us today. Yeah. And of course, by the time our listeners hear this, then uh, they will be feel much smarter than we are because mm -hmm. they will know the answer to some of these questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Paul, is there anything you'd like to say in closing? No, I don't think so. Thank you very much indeed for a very interesting discussion. And um, and uh, I would really welcome a continuation one way or another with, uh, with the listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time for what I think has been a really interesting conversation. I'm very grateful to you, Paul. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you both. You've been listening to Guns and God. Co-hosts today were Helen Painter and Matthew Feldman, and our guest was Paul Lusk. Mm -hmm.